Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. If we read a little further in A Movable Feast after our opening sentences, we would have read the passage where Hemingway claims that he went to study Cezanne paintings at the Musée de Luxembourg nearly every day, and that he was learning something from the painting of Cezanne that made writing simple true sentences far from enough to make the stories have the dimensions that was trying to put in them. So I've always taken Hemingway at his word when I've read that, even when I'm not entirely sure what he's getting at. One of the privileges of this show is that I'm able to prevail upon a Cezanne scholar to help us get to know Cezanne better and help us figure out what he might be talking about. So joining us today is Carol Armstrong. Carol Armstrong has taught at Yale since 2007, where she teaches and writes about 19th century French painting, the history of photography, the history and practice of art criticism, feminist theory, and the representation of women and gender in art and visual culture. She has published books and essays on Edgar Degas, Edouard Manet, Paul Cezanne, and 19th and 20th century photography, modern and contemporary women artists, and has curated exhibitions at Princeton University Art Museum, the Drawing Center in New York, the Yale Center for British Art, and the J. Paul Getty Museum. Her most recent book, Cezanne's Gravity with Yale University Press, has won the 2019 Robert Motherwell Book Award for an outstanding book on modernism in the arts. We are so pleased that Carol Armstrong is here to join us. Thank you so much, Carol. And thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting me to do this. So you understand where we're coming from with the mystery of some of these statements of, of trying to write like Cezanne, and I hope we can get there by the end of, the, by the end of this episode. Uh, maybe we can start with a brief overview of who Cezanne was and a little bit about his career. So Cezanne um, is a, was a painter who lived from 1839 to 1906. He's variously labeled as an impressionist and a post-impressionist. He sort of, he was a country boy and he really fashioned an identity for himself um, as a country boy who grew up in Aix-en-Provence. He was the son of a hat maker turned banker uh, father. Uh, his parents actually were not married at the time that that uh, that he was born. Um, something that would be he would duplicate himself in his own uh, relations with the woman who became his wife and the mother of his um, of his child. He his father had ambitions, and this was not unusual um, either then or now, I suppose. Um, his father had no particular desire for him to become an artist, wanted him to become a lawyer. Uh, he, he enrolled in law uh, courses, and, um, but at the same time, he was also taking uh, drawing lessons in X. And his very close friend, uh, the writer Emil Zola, they more or less grew up together in X. Uh, who had went gone to Paris before he did began urging him to come to the uh, to the city 
And in the the period roughly between 1861, when he uh, really first went to Paris and uh, at 82 or so, he was making regular trips back and forth between uh, between Paris and uh, and X. And he started his his career started with these very uh, kind of odd, dark, brooding, and even kind of violent sort of literary uh, paintings in the 1860s that featured uh, murders and rapes and and other kinds of violent scenarios that he was garnering from a contemporary literature and kind of sensationalist uh, writing that was that was serialized in newspapers and so on, including uh, Zola's um, early writing. Under the influence of the Impressionists and particularly Camille Pizarro, he began painting outside and began developing a style that looked more like um, Impressionist painting. It was brighter, was painted on the spot, uh, it was much more dedicated to trying to represent what you saw with your own eyes rather than the fantasy world that he had created in his earlier um, paintings. And he would include a few paintings in the, f- the first Impressionist exhibition in 1874 and the third of 1877. There were eight of them all together. Um, but then, and he kept, uh, as many other painters did, submitting his paintings to the Salon, which was the more or less annual display, state-sponsored display of uh, paintings. He didn't get into any of those. He was perhaps next to Van Gogh. During the first couple of decades of his life, the most unsuccessful (laughs) in terms of having a market um, uh, painters uh, of uh, of his time. This is a great overview. You use the word developed. Like he developed a style. So if we were watch, if we were uh, observing Cezanne's output at that point, would we think that there was something revolutionary about it, or was he adopting prior techniques to, to in a with a different inflection? Well, I think um, now we we would think that by the 1870s, anyway, there was something uh, revolutionary that was developing. But of course, that's refracted through everything that came afterwards, um, and in which we've learned to see Cezanne in a particular um, a particular way. So um, by the I don't know early to mid 1870s, he had not only begun sort of lightening up the the palette and the colors that he used to match what impressionists were doing, but he had developed what one art historian calls a constructive stroke which was this kind of unit of color, um, these kind of slanting strokes that all look alike, that introduce a, both a kind of distortion into the objects that he represents and a kind of abstract, what looks to our eye perhaps as a kind of abstraction. Um, the sort of American modernist critic, Clement Greenberg, would describe them as sort of little flat uh, mosaic-like strokes that mimic the shape of the entire um, canvas in 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 microcosm. What's the best painting uh, to illustrate what you're what you're describing? Does, uh, one, does one come to mind? Well, I suppose one of the uh, no, uh, not immediately because because the shift happens across the across the board. I see. I, I had in mind for us to talk mostly about landscape sure. um, uh, today, since that's the. Um, 
one of the uh, best known subject matters that he uh, works with. And it was certainly landscape that I think Hemingway was was thinking of when he uh, when he talked about wanting to write like uh, like Cezanne. There's an early painting that was in an 1873 painting presently in the Musée d'Orsay that Hemingway would have been able to, to, to see um, when he was in Paris uh, called The House of the Hanged Man. Um, it's a kind of dramatic title. N nobody ever hanged themselves in that house. <laughs> but um, uh, but in, in the town of Auvers, um, and it's built up very thickly. Um, in fact, uh, Cezanne used, as Courbet, the realist painter before him had done, used his palette knife to sort of slather um, paint um, on and to build it up almost like a bricklayer would build up mortar very heavily on the, on the surface. And at that point, I think you're not really seeing what I just described as the constructive, these kind of little mosaic-like um, mm -hmm. Uh, touches of, of brightly colored um, paint. But you are seeing something um, that is characteristic of Cezanne, both his desire to paint the world in a very solid and substantial way, not to let it lose its, um, uh, its the sense of solidity uh, the way the other Impressionists did in a sense of kind of ephemeral changing impressions of light and so on. And he sa himself said he wasn't particularly interested in light effects. He really wanted something that was solid and enduring. And you also have a kind of coagulated, um, very dense uh, spatial world um, that combines this sense of volume and, uh, and solidity with an almost kind of claustrophobic uh, spatial um, uh, world. And he would take that as a sort of uh, foundation as he began more and more to experiment with this sort of looser, brighter colored um, uh, paintwork. Perhaps a painting from a little bit later that best better represents uh, the style that came to be understood as revolutionary is the Pont de Massy, um, also now in the Musée d'Orsay, and it would have been one of those things that he, he was, um, Hemingway was looking at things that were in private collections, in the collection of the um, Gertrude and Leo Stein, in the Musée de, de, de Luxembourg, as you mentioned, and that would eventually go into the Louvre and from there into the Musée d'Orsay. And the Pont de Massy of about 1879, um, I think gives you a sense of how he shifted uh, from the earlier uh, work into yes. the style that became known as the kind of post-impressionist um, uh, style of that was that was singular to Cezanne and wouldn't really uh, kind of transform other people's paintings until the last decade of the 19th century and in particular the first two decades of the of the 20th century and that's these sort of mosaic like little um, uh, touches with a reduced palette so it's sort of greens earth tones ochres brick colors an emphasis upon kind of solid forms um, so he's famous for having said treat nature as a cylinder sphere and a cone so you have a kind of geometrical emphasis, which would be taken up by the by Picasso and Braque and in the style that 
was known as cubist um, uh, painting. Uh, and they do look like sort of a, a kind of network, almost a web of similarly shaped touches, like each touch is a little unit of, uh, of paint, like the sort of Hemingway's desire to um, have a kind of simplified unit of writing. Right. Um, I suppose you could say that that is similar to what uh, Cezanne became, uh, became known for. When I'm looking at, at this painting, I see that uh, the bridge is treated in a much different way than nature is treated. And I wonder, you, you said just a few minutes ago about how Cezanne treated objects. And is there something about the interplay between the clarity of that bridge and the movement, and you called it a mosaic, above it, that emphasizes the relationship between those two things, the man-made and, and the natural? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually think of the man-made aspect of the bridge as being similar to kind of geological forms um, that have that have a kind of long duration and a long um, history. And we know that Cezanne was in, among the kind of scientific interests he had what, uh, was geology. So you can think of the kind of almost the, the circular form uh, of the one half of the bridge mm. Um, as it, and then as it's reflected in the, and the, in the river and the diagonal created by the other half of the bridge. Yes. As like those kind of rocky um, solid forms um, of the mountain, the Mont Saint-Victoire and the quarries and so on um, near that mountain that he was so interested in. Um, but I think you're absolutely right to point to the bridge is a very solid presence, though it's made up of the same kind of brushwork as the rest of the canvas. And then above and particularly above it in the foliage part of the, of the scene, you have a sense of movement of a kind of shimmer. So there's a kind of combination of a kind of kinetic um, sense that the world is in uh, constant movement and of duration of something that lasts um, a long, long time. And both of those two things I think are different, I, even though he had learned so much from impressionism, are very different from the Impressionist emphasis on kind of light and evanescent um, shifting shapes and forms and a kind of lighter, uh, more delicate uh, palette than you have in, in Cezanne's case. Um, and the Impressionists were famous for wanting to paint, the, to, wanting to make their canvases look like what you see in a single glance. And I think it's different in Cezanne's case, that he's wanting you to see how the world looks um, as it moves and changes, as your eye ranges over things from different points of view. And that becomes even more radical in the, in, as he goes along. So is that where the father of modernism comes in, that he, he wants to create action in his, in his paintings? Yeah, there's a kind of kinetic um, feel um, to it uh, that uh, would be embraced and sort of, I don't know, transformed um, and simplified in certain directions by in cubist uh, painting. Although he was, he had a great big uh, sort of breakout breakthrough show um, with the dealer Vollard in 1895 in Paris. And then the younger painters of the symbolist generation began to be very interested in his work. Um, and then his, his paintings began having an international audience 
a couple of the younger painters, Emile Bernard and uh, Maurice Denis came to, to talk, made kind of pilgrimages to see him and began talking about him as a kind of primitive of a new movement uh, in art. He was in the autumn salons, the Salon d'Automne, um, that were very, very popular between 1903 and his uh, well, first his death, he died in 1906, but there was a big, big show of his work at one of those salons in 1907. And every the year before uh, the term Cubism was uh, was invented, and just as Matisse and the Fauves, the wild beast painters, were coming to the fore, and Georges Braque and Pablo Picasso were developing a new style based very much on Cezanne's painting that was dubbed Cubist. And then, then there's a longer history of how it becomes embraced as a kind of modernist style of painting. And the term post-impressionist, uh, which was coined by, the, by um, uh, Roger Fry, um, uh, part of the Bloomsbury Group in, uh, in London. And they, together, um, and artists up until the 1950s would continue to talk about Cezanne is a kind of primitive of a new movement or is the father of a new, of a new art. And it really starts it, to take yeah. off in that sort of decade or so before Hemingway um, becomes really interested in, yeah. in Cezanne's work. Uh, is it, so you were mentioning earlier that uh, I think the, the aspect of Cezanne that Hemingway really seemed to gravitate towards were landscapes. And so in your previous answer, when you're talking about geometric shapes, and even Cezanne's intersection with modern science or what was modern science uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Is that uh, the geometric shapes, et cetera, is that what uh, Cezanne's trademark was when it came to landscape? So he says, uh, when he's the very famous articulation when Hemingway is writing Gertrude Stein in 1924, he says, I'm trying to do the country like Cezanne right. and having a hell of a time and sometimes getting it a little bit. And so what does that mean? What's doing the country like Cezanne for a writer? All right. So uh, I've been thinking about that. I mean, when you first invited me to, um, to c come and have this interview, I, was, I, was, I sort of read through the, the brief comments, and they're kind of elliptical, um, that uh, Hemingway made about Cezanne and tried to kind of wrestle with what it was that he was um, seeing um, in Cezanne's work. And so there is that comment about wanting to write stories like, as objective and real as the paintings of Cezanne, to do the country as Cezanne had done it. And there's another thing. I think there was he was wandering through the the Metropolitan in 1950 with a uh, with the writer Lillian Ross talking about the Cezans there, and he said, "This is what we try to do in writing: this and this and the woods and the rocks we have to climb over." Cezanne is my favorite painter. And in another place, he talks about wanting, thinking that, wondering if if. Cezanne was hungry when he painted, <laughs> um, and you know, thinking about in a different way. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, he was right. hungry. Uh, um, you know, one of among the, the different things. There's quite a myth that developed around Cezanne that he himself contributed to, and that other writers um, and artists contributed um, to, and all a list of these kind of aphorisms some of which are a little bit confusing and illogical um, that are associated uh, with him, including that one about the doing 
Poussin uh, after nature or painting according to the forms of the, the um, cylinder sphere and the cone. Um, but among other things uh, that he is reputed to have, said, uh, to have said is, I want to die painting. Painting was an absolutely sort of life, um, absolutely necessary um, uh, to him. And my first thought about Hemingway was that he was identifying with a painter who painted as if his life depended upon it. And in some ways, I think it was psychologically really true of Cezanne. So that's the first, I guess, the first thing that I, uh, I, I would have said. I've read things where people have compared Hemingway's this sort of emphasis upon a kind of masculine uh, world to a similar focus uh, in Cezanne's um, painting. I'm not sure I quite see that myself in, uh, in Cezanne. But I guess as I think about the uh, wanting to do the country uh, like Cezanne, I suppose the the short story, uh, Big Two-Hearted River, is, is he actually had a sentence at one point um, where the, the character says he wanted to, to write like Cezanne, which I guess he, he dropped from the short story. That's exactly right. Yeah, but that's a short story that is about, uh, is about landscape um, and is about sort of surviving in the landscape but also using the landscape as a as a way to come back to life after the war, um, to regenerate uh, oneself. And it's a landscape in which the uh, writer seems to immerse himself in a full body uh, way, all of his senses. It's a landscape, I mean, he takes you through it with simplified sentences, which I think you could relate to the kind, this kind of simplified unit of paint that, uh, that Cezanne uh, uses. Uh, very direct sentences, but which take you in a kind of kinetic way through the landscape that um, the sort of protagonist, who really is Hemingway, <laughs> I, I suppose, um, um, as he moves through the river that he fishes in and as he sets up camp and, and so on, um, and as he smells and touches and uh, not just sees, but smells and touches and is sort of fully um, immersed in this landscape. It is a kinetic uh, changing whose point of view changes. Um, and that seems <clears> to me to be all of those um, characteristics are alike uh, what Cezanne does in a different medium. Maybe we can look at the, we can look together at the painting that Hemingway was really referring to in, uh, in that Lillian Ross portrait, uh, portrait of Hemingway, uh, the, the rocks at Fontainebleau. Sure. Um, uh, which was uh, as the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1949 when they when they had that interview. So, can we extrapolate what there was about that particular painting that seized Hemingway's imagination? Sure. I mean, it's 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 got everything that um, in it that 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 I've already tried to characterize with regard to, for example, the uh, the Pont de Mancy um, painting of the of uh, the bridge painting. Um, but it's, he's now really sort of developed this kind of uh, web, uh, almost a kind of textile-like web um, of those mosaic-like or tessera-like uh, brushstrokes. Um, and he's moved you right, in, Cezanne has moved you right into the center of this kind of 
rocky landscape where you're surrounded by I mean, here's, here's one of those places where you can see his interest in geology and, and, the, and the very ancient forms of the, of the earth. And he talked actually about wanting to be able to paint in a, almost a geological um, uh, way. So you have some of the same combination of solid, long-standing, um, unchanging or relatively unchanging forms, the rocks, um, and a sense of the geological workings of uh, of nature, um, all the clefts, uh, the meeting between different planes of rock. Yeah. And then this, again, it's dark. The palette is rather dark. Um, it's grays and earth colors and greens and uh, some blue of the of the sky. When you look up close, you can see how much actually color there is within what appears at first glance to be almost monochromatic uh, painting, which is the piece of it that the Cubists uh, would take away from uh, Cezanne. But there you have a kind of sense, you have repeated contours as if things are moving, as if also the, 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 there's this kind of movement of the foliage in contrast to the solidity of the uh, of the rocks, a sense of wanting to register the process of painting um, in the landscape so that um, the process of, of, of contouring, of applying many different colors to model uh, different volumes uh, rather than just doing a kind of uh, dark light, um, uh, a traditional um, modeling. Now, is this something that Cezanne would have sketched out or tried three or four different ways? Or was this something like a, a, a one-time effort? Um, he didn't tend to make, uh, especially with his landscape, sketches prior toward a particular uh, landscape. What he did do was to take the same motifs and do them over and over again. Um, and what he did, and, and so this is uh, the, perhaps the most famous is the Mont Saint-Victoire, the most noticeable kind of geological feature outside of the town of X. Uh, but the rocks and grottos and the sort of caves and uh, quarries uh, near uh, his oh, home right. and his studio uh, are ones that he returned to uh, repeatedly. And there's a way he builds the kind of process of coming to a finished picture into visibly into uh, the each and every painting uh, that he paints. So he is famous for leaving bare ground, bare um, canvas visible, yeah. which would become a kind of hallmark of abstract painting later on, and which I think he got from watercolor. But he also is is very much showing us the process of how as he says, he, he, he was a doubting painter who was rarely satisfied with what he was doing and with what he came up, uh, came up with, who was always trying to, as he put it, realize his sensations, try to transcribe what he not only saw but felt uh, and understood from what was in front of him onto the canvas. That involves a kind of process in which you can see changes of mind. You can see the process of trying to render uh, the landscape. Is that similar to Hemingway? I'm, yeah. I'm well, it's, it's interesting, Carol, that you say that because, you know, one of Hemingway's defining credos is his theory of uh, omission, the ice, iceberg principle, where he would, he would 
just give you what you needed. And then the re- most of the, most of the emotion and the most of the detail was in the subtext. Right. And of course, which provides a challenge to the reader that the reader needs to participate. Is that the kind of thing when you're looking at a Cezanne painting that has these, these uh, omitted aspects of it, does the viewer need to collaborate with Cezanne? Absolutely. Um, so I think the, the viewer is being, is being asked uh, by the painter to very much participate in the same process that he was, that he was engaged in as he tried to kind of register his, his sensations, yeah. opticals, his visual as well as tactile and other kinds of sensations. And, and do you view that as a modern uh, capital M technique or? It became did- understood as a modern technique. Um, I mean, to, to go back again to the relationship to, to, the omitted uh, pieces of yep. Hemingway and to uh, that Hemingway stressed and his use of a kind of simplified, a kind of direct sentence structure that gives you a bit and then you fill in, you yes. fill in. Um, and there's a kind of austerity about that and self-discipline about that, that I would ascribe to Cezanne as well. Um, I mean, his, there are, some of his paintings are absolutely many of them. I, in particular, love his still lives. There's a kind of plenitude um, that is absolutely gorgeous. But they are they also have a kind of austerity um, about them, something that's sort of pared down that I think is like uh, Hemingway. Well, one of the things that Hemingway liked to talk about was the the one detail that would provide the emotion. And so, you know, it's like, that's great writing is to, is to remember, to, to witness and then remember and then convey that detail that will rent, make the scene emotional for the reader. And then the reader will, it will be as if the reader uh, were there. And I wonder, even a couple paintings ago that we were discussing about, like looking at the rocks, uh, what provided the emotion for, what emotion did Cezanne want to convey? Was it something uh, aesthetic with light was it the shapes that you were mentioning or the combination of all of those what what do you think he wanted the reader uh, the viewer's emotion to be uh, so i might answer that in a slightly roundabout um uh way uh if you if you don't mind i mean i think that it's what he does is different from what hemingway was doing with this kind of crystallizing detail um, what becomes so um, crucial for later modernists and abstractionists about Cezanne's painting is that it has this kind of what what became known as a kind of with Jackson Pollock, for example, as a kind of all over um, structure where there's no one point of focus um, and there's no sense of a center to the composition, but a kind of all over web um, uh, that goes um, across the whole um, uh, canvas and unifies um, uh, the canvas. Um, so that I think is a little bit different from what Hemingway uh, was trying to do with those kinds of crystallizing, uh, focalizing sort of details, I guess. As to the the emotion, I'm not sure that, you know, his, his very early um, paintings, which he himself described um, using a kind of uh, boy, uh, a, a kind of, uh, sort of 
almost obscene uh, word. Um, he talked about them as being cuyaud or ballsy, um, uh, virile um, canvases. Yeah. And they're very violent. They're very aggressive. And they're very literary in terms of they have stories that they, uh, that they tell. And he basically rejected uh, that after the, uh, after the 1860s. Maybe we'll have time to talk about this. He had some, some interesting things to say about painting and writing and about how painters should not paint like, uh, like writers. Oh, interesting. They have to do something <laughs> different. Um, I think what he, I don't think he wanted you to feel this or that particular emotion um, necessarily, but I think he wanted in front of any, any given um, landscape or painting that he had done, but I think he wanted you to feel what it f felt like for the world to be constantly coming into being in front of your eyes. As much as he may have loved very still things in the world, solid uh, forms, there's also a sense at the same time that it is constantly changing. Um, and he is wrestling with how to, um, how to translate it into, uh, into painting. Uh, you know, when you say the uh, difference between still life and uh, uh, yet still uh, movement within that, I'm thinking of the cover of your book of Cezanne's Gravity, how you, you look at that uh, relatively simple idea and uh, what is conveyed in that painting? What is the, where is the, the tension or emotion derived from that, from that particular image? If landscape was, was important for Hemingway, um, it's one of the subject matters that was crucial for Cezanne. The topic of the apple, <laughs> yes. um, and he is, he is supposed to have said at, at one point, I want to astonish Paris with an apple. <laughs> so a yeah. sense of something very simple, very ordinary, uh, but also very universal, uh, and something that he nevertheless wanted to make into this astonishing, almost as if you were newborn and seeing an apple for That's the first right. time. Um, and to convey through a limited means this, the wonder of something very simple. As you stand in front of it, and yes, I mean, traditionally we think of a painting as being a single moment in time. But actually, I think when you look closely at Cezanne's paintings, what you see is that the eye has traveled over from here to there. Um, and as it does so, the point of view shifts a little bit. So those simple still objects have a world of livingness and moving, uh, a kind of movement in them. That is the movement of the, of the subjectivity of the artist as much as it is the movement of those objects themselves. Then why would he be skeptical of the literary? So he was very interested in the literary. So he was, uh, as I said before, he was very close friends with, uh, with Emil Zola. Um, there are, you know, from, from the late 1860s, from novels like uh, Therese Raquin by, uh, by Zola, which features a murder, and there is a murder in a painting by, uh, early painting by Cezanne, very possibly um, a drawing on, on Zola's, uh, Zola's writing. He is, was fascinated with Balzac's um, uh, writing. He said, Frenhofer, uh, c'est moi, Frenhofer is me. Frenhofer was the title character 
in the unknown masterpiece uh, that Balzac uh, published in, in, in 1837. Um, a painter who's struggling um, with this kind of visionary yeah. sense of his uh, painting and is, feels to himself to be a failure at the very end of that story. His friendship with Zola, he was reading all of Zola's novels and his friendship with Zola kind of ended in 1886 with the publication of Zola's uh, The Masterpiece in which, uh, which, in which the main character is based in part on Cezanne and that painter goes mad and um, Cezanne was quite um, angry about, uh, about that portrayal and, and saw it as a kind of betrayal. Was it close to accurate? Uh, it's a kind of fever dream uh, rendition of uh, of Cezanne and some other painters, but um, it has been uh, hypothesized that Cezanne um, uh, was close to schizophrenic. Um, and I actually share the view that if he had not had a kind of stable life, he might have been much more like Van Gogh than... Uh, than he actually ended up um, uh, being. Hemingway was not the only one. Uh, the poet Rilke uh, wrote about, beautifully uh, about him. Virginia Woolf was was really taken with his uh, with his painting. Um, uh, really admired the still life that uh, that you were just mentioning. Um, and I think, in part, Cezanne's way of painting provided a a model for um, the female painter, Lily Briscoe, at the, at the heart of To the Lighthouse. Yes. So D.H. Lawrence also wrote about Cezanne, all, all in the same period. Um, but there's this other thing he said, he, um, and let me just sort of uh, find it so that I can characterize it better. He said that the artist must avoid thinking like a, a writer. He also said, literature expresses itself by abstractions, whereas painting does so by means of drawing and color and gives concrete shape to sensations and uh, perceptions. And there's another very famous um, uh, quote that, that relates more closely to his still life uh, work, where he's taking a passage describing a sort of dining room uh, table setting from another story, The Peau de Chagrin by um, Balzac. Um, uh, and I'll just read it to you. The, the quote from Balzac's story is, the table, a tablecloth white as a layer of newly fallen snow upon which the place settings rise symmetrically, crowned with blonde rolls. Um, and, and Cezanne said, first of all, well, if I try to paint the, the whitest snow and the crowned um, aspect of this, I'm not going to succeed at all. But if I really balance and shade my place settings and roles as they are in nature, then you can be sure that the crowns, the snow, and all the excitement will be there too. So that's one place yeah. that yeah. crystallizes his sense of the, the fundamental difference as much as he liked writing and read voraciously. Green uh, writing, uh, the writer's sensibility and the artist's sensibility as far as he was concerned. That's excellent. Uh, Carol, maybe we can conclude on just one thought, and that is circling back to the beginning. So, you know, we the title of our podcast is One True Podcast, which is a, a cheeky adaptation of Hemingway's credo of writing one true sentence. And I wonder if we can just think of that phrase, one true sentence, and see where Cezanne's entry might be to that. I know one true brushstroke doesn't make too much sense, 
but is there something about truth or authenticity or the actual that you think may be kind of what Hemingway is referring to and there, there may be an association there? So I, I, yes, I think, and it's not to say one true brushstroke is, is not, um, completely wrong. Although, um, each painting is made up of this sort of tapestry <laughs> of, of, of brush, uh, brushstrokes. Um, although the fact that they're all kind of, they're tapestry like, and they're all, they're like little, um, units um, that are, there's one true way, perhaps, of rendering his sensations. But I guess I would say that one true sensation might be the, uh, Mm. might be the corollary to the one true sentence, um, uh, if that makes sense, that he kept saying, I want to realize my sensation. So it's as if he's trying to render the cognitive, you know, the uh, the way a, uh, a scene comes into your mind, into your eye and into your mind and the way you're trying to make sense of it as you're looking at it. That is the sensation. And he wants to realize the perception that he's had in front of that in paint in, on canvas and make it real. So maybe the one true sensation <laughs> works as a kind of corollary. Carol Armstrong, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for sharing your expertise on Paul Cezanne. You're absolutely welcome. It was a pleasure for me too. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on HemingwaySociety.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at OneTruePod. That's the number, OneTruePod. Or email us at OneTruePod at gmail.com. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department of the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast. Oh, no.